Well, turn with me, if you would, uh, in your Bibles uh, to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 6. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you uh, and you don't want to walk back to the cart and grab one, you can follow along in your bulletin. The passage before us today is printed there as usual. Uh, Just for the sake of our visitors, we have been studying the book of Mark, uh, working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, uh, through this gospel account of our Lord Jesus. Uh, It's been a great study. Um, I I speak for myself, I guess, in in that. I hope it's been a good study for you uh, as well. This will be actually our last week in Mark for a few weeks. Uh, We're going to take a break from uh, Mark, and there'll be a few guest preachers that we'll be privileged to hear from in this pulpit in the coming weeks. And in God's providence, uh, this is actually where we are as we work our way through this book. This is actually a good uh, and proper place uh, to hit the pause button on our study of Mark, because this is a a time of transition in the book. Uh, After our passage today, Uh, As Jesus sends out his apostles, uh, Jesus' ministry shifts. Uh, It shifts from the region of Galilee, which where he has spent most of his time, uh, to regions outside of Galilee. And so in God's providence, that's a blessing as we take a break briefly uh, from Mark. So if you would, out of honor and reverence for God's word, if you would stand with me as I read our passage for this morning, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. Listen as I read. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As many of you know, knowing where uh, my wife and I are from, 
Uh, we take frequent tra- trips, our family and I, to the southeast portion of uh, the United States to visit family and, and some friends. And one of the signs that uh, we see frequently, that I've seen frequently as we're driving about in the southeast is uh, a sign as you cross a state line that says, welcome, we're glad that Georgia's on your mind. Site of the 1996 Olympic Games. There's a couple interesting things about that sign that welcomes you to the state of Georgia. One is that it's been 20 years since the 1996 Olympic Games, and yet that state, and specifically the city of Atlanta, takes great pride in hosting that worldwide event. But it's also noteworthy that when they say Georgia's on their mind, they're also recognizing the value of Ray Charles and that great song, Georgia's on your mind, and the pride they have in being in that song. All of you have your own versions. You can think in your mind of examples of community pride. I did a little digging and I found these. Welcome to Arkansas, home of President Bill Clinton. Or a sign in the UK, East Ayrshire, I didn't say that right, birthplace of William Wallace. Or this one that was surprising to me, as you enter uh, the nation of Kenya, welcome to Kenya, birthplace of Barack Obama. Hometown heroes, all of them. And then a little closer to home and a little more complicated, there is Aberdeen, Washington. Aberdeen, Washington, which has on its sign as you drive into Aberdeen, come as you are. The come as you are is the name of a song from the most famous person to come from Aberdeen, the front man of the 90s band Nirvana. And it took Aberdeen 11 years to put that on their sign because they had great angst about whether they ought to associate themselves with Kurt Cobain. He wasn't a model citizen in Aberdeen, apparently. You see, it's a little complicated. And as we get to Nazareth, things are a bit messy there as well. Two truths this morning that I want us to consider as we work our way through this next section in the book of Mark. And the first one is this, an ordinary Jesus is offensive. An ordinary Jesus is offensive. And we don't know much about Nazareth, about ancient Nazareth, which we just read about in this passage, but we do know that it was basically nowhere. Nazareth was a small agricultural settlement somewhere southwest of the Sea of Galilee, and some historians estimate Nazareth at this time to be about 10 acres in size and to contain less than 2,000 people. Some even say it's even just hundreds of people. Nazareth wasn't much to talk about. 
In fact, John, uh, the Apostle John, gives us the prevailing attitude when he relays Nathanael's words in John chapter 1, verse 46, when Nathanael says, upon hearing that the Messiah is from Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, Jesus did. Jesus did. And, and now he's back. He's back. He's returned for his big hometown reception and key to the city, right? The Nazareth Gazette. Small town carpenter's son makes regional name for himself, healing the sick, preaching a kingdom, and even raising the dead. But that's not the way it goes for Jesus. It starts off well. Jesus was where any good Jew would be on the Sabbath day. He's in the synagogue. He's in the house of worship. He's wanting to be with God's people. He's wanting to worship God. He's wanting to hear God's word read to him. But Jesus, well, he's ordinary, but he's not ordinary. (laughs) He's no ordinary Jew. Because Jesus, with no religious, with no academic training, doesn't just sit there and listen, but he gets up. And he explains what the people have just heard. And the people are digesting this Jesus and they're amazed, they're astonished, and then, wait a second, they catch themselves. They're offended. And we ask, what offends them? What offends them is the ordinariness of Jesus. See, this offense that Mark speaks of in verse 3, this offense is more than just disagreement. This offense is outrage. This offense is disgust. The noun translated offense is where we get our English word scandal. You see, they were scandalized by Jesus. Jesus grew up here. Many remember him. They remember him running around town, playing with his siblings, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters. And they don't forget this. Oh yeah, this is Jesus. He's from that family. That family. You see, in this time and place, you never identify someone in a patriarchal society As the son of their mother, it would always be the son of the father. And even if Joseph is dead at this point, it's still Joseph that should be the identifying name. But what do they say? Is this not the son of Mary? Folks, this is a small town. Word gets around in a small town. Reputations stick in a small town. They remember the circumstances around Mary's pregnancy and Jesus' birth. Who really is Jesus' dad after all? Yeah, Joseph jumped into the scene. Jesus, come on. You see, it's all so earthly The origin of Jesus, the childhood of Jesus, even the present appearance of Jesus as he's standing before them, speaking God's word, it's all too ordinary. 
If this is the guy that they've been waiting for, everything should be different. I mean, this, this guy is not, this is not how religion works. And so while Jesus has already offended the religiously elite, now the rejection of the masses, beginning in his own hometown, begins. Remember Simeon way back when Jesus was born, Simeon at the temple, the godly man who held the baby Jesus in his arms. He told Mary, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And now it's starting. It's beginning. It's happening. And of course, we know the end of the story. The rejection that begins here will be a rejection that will culminate in these very same people crying out at the top of his lung, of their, their lungs for his death, for his crucifixion. And of course, Isaiah the prophet spoke that this is the way it was going to go down both the ordinary nature of Jesus as well as Jesus' inevitable end. He had no form. He had no majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Friends, this is the gospel. Because Jesus was rejected, we are accepted. Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And ultimately, it wasn't the rejection by these men, by his family and friends from his hometown that mattered. Going back to the disdain at Jesus' origins, the, the fatherlessness of Jesus in that small town of Nazareth, It was the fact that Jesus' heavenly Father turned his back on him. You see, Jesus, in a sense, did become fatherless for us. As he cried out on that cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus was rejected, we can be accepted. Praise God for the offense of an ordinary Jesus. Well, we could end right there, but there's more. There's more I want to talk about and wrestle with because I don't want us to just think about this in terms of the person of Jesus and work as significant, as important as the gospel is to us. We need to be reminded of that every day you are accepted because he was rejected. But I also want to speak of his message Because the ordinary Jesus, the person of Jesus, can't be separated from his words. And that's true in our society as well, as we are representatives of Jesus. Jesus and his message are offensive, more than ever. And we ask, why? Why is Jesus so offensive? Well, the first and obvious answer to that question is because he is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It'd be one thing if Jesus just presents himself as an option among many, but he doesn't do that. And to a people, to a modern people who idolize individual choice, 
This is just unacceptable. They don't just disagree with it. They are disgusted at it. They are scandalized by it. And to hearts naturally bent to be their own gods, it's absolutely repulsive that you would say that I need your Jesus. So that's one reason. But going back to the teaching of our passage, I think Jesus and his message are also offensive because they are so ordinary. And what do I mean by that? Well, think about it. Buddhism has its eightfold path. Islam has its five pillars. Hinduism has its five daily homages and five lifelong karmas. Mormonism has its two-year mandatory mission work. And Jesus says, receive my grace with faith. With simple, and as we were reminded last week, with the weakest of faith. Just reach out. Grab a hold of me. That's all you need. And our our prideful heart says, no, there's got to be more. There's got to be something I can add. And Jesus says, just turn to me. Trust in me. There's got to be more. There's a story in the Old Testament about Naaman, a commander of the army in the ancient army of Syria. It's told in 2 Kings, you see, there was a great and successful man, the Bible tells us, named Naaman. But he was also a leper, and he suffered from this terrible skin disease of which he needed relief. And a small Hebrew girl told him about a prophet in the land of Israel, a prophet by the name of Elisha, who had the power to heal we read in 2 Kings 5, verse 9, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away. See, Naaman expected, as he says later, he expected Elisha to come out. He expected Elisha to wave his hand before him, to to call upon the Lord, perhaps in some magical incantation. Instead, all he has to do is go wash in the Jordan. I've got rivers at home, he says. I could have done that at home. There's got to be something more. But no, the gospel is so simple It's so ordinary, and yet it's so hard, and it's so extraordinary at the same time. You see, there's no middle ground with Jesus. You either believe and live, or you reject him. You chase all of your ways of being good, and you perish. So rejoice in the offense of an ordinary Jesus. Back to our passage in God's providence, Nazareth is a place of hardened 
hearts. Jesus marvels. It's the only time that Mark uses this verb of Jesus. Jesus marvels at their unbelief. It's like the tables have been turned. All the marveling that has gone on about Jesus and about his work, and suddenly Jesus is the one marveling. And it's a reality that not just astounds Jesus, but it grieves him. Mark says, he could do no mighty work there. It's an interesting phrase. Now we know that Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus is God. Jesus can do anything. So this is not inability, but what this is, is Jesus being bound by his own self-imposed limitations. He will not, he cannot perform miracles without faith, without relationship. And he proved that last week. He wasn't content to let the woman just touch him and suck the energy out of him. He wanted relationship with her. He wanted her to know what he was about. And as I was thinking about that phrase, and I was thinking about that reality of he could do no mighty works, I was, I was thinking about James chapter 4, where James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And it makes us ask the question, how much of Jesus are we missing out on because we simply don't ask? Believe, trust, ask. It's all so ordinary. No seven steps, no five pillars. Repent and believe. But there's another thing I want us to briefly consider from this passage, and it's this. Ordinary disciples have been given an extraordinary mission. Ordinary disciples have been given an extraordinary mission. You see, this passage, is particularly these latter verses that we've read this morning, are in some sense a microcosm of the mission of the church. Now let me get you clear, this was a unique time in the history of redemption. We, we aren't apostles in the same way that these men are apostles, sent on a unique mission in a unique time and place, but we are disciples. We are learners, and we are trusted, entrusted with a message, with a hope that needs to be defended, with a light that needs to be shown. And so there are commonalities here in Jesus' sending of the twelve that we would do well to consider. And they focus on the two words I think that we've already focused on. The first word is the word ordinary. How does an ordinary Jesus affect the church? Well, simply put, Jesus loves the ordinary. We've talked about this in various ways as we've come to various passages in God's Word over the past months and years and weeks. Think about it. Ordinary message. We've already talked about that. Grace is hard to swallow for so many of us because it's so free. Come to me, Jesus says, and you will find rest. An ordinary message Ordinary means. 
This is a particular staple and strength of our Reformed heritage as Reformed Presbyterians is we don't stress, we don't wear ourselves out striving to find a better way, an edgier way, a cutting edge way to communicate God's love for man. No, instead we believe that this, being together as God's people, hearing His words, coming to the table together, fellowshipping, praying, that these things are the things that God uses. Not the only things He uses, but the primary means that He uses to grow disciples. Ordinary message, ordinary means, and then ordinary servants. Boy, we've talked about this, probably because I need to hear this so much. My own heart needs to hear this so much. What did Paul say? We are jars of clay, broken, fragile individuals that hold a treasure for the world, the treasure of the gospel. And yet in our weakness and frailty, in the ordinariness of a jar of clay, Jesus speaks truth and life. And then ordinary circumstances, and we've talked about this before too, our lives don't consist. They don't consist of mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience. And sometimes we as Christians, we want to live like that. We want to get to the mountaintop and we want to jump from that peak to the next peak. And we can't do it. And that's because Jesus... Although he may meet us in those mountaintop experiences, he meets us just as much in the valleys. He, just, he meets us just as much in the ordinary moments, in those 10,000 mundane moments of our lives. Jesus meets us there, and that's where we meet others. Ordinary circumstances. So that's the ordinariness of it all, of our mission as the church. But what's the second word? Well, let me focus on that word offensive. Offensive. Simply put, in a world such as ours, and increasingly so, rejection is just part of being a disciple. It's just part of sharing the gospel this ordinary and yet extraordinary message. And the reality is Jesus is offensive, even if you're not. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in John 15, 18, and 20, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so as Jesus sends out his 12 here in this latter half of this passage, there are a couple things for us to take note of. He grouped them by teams. I think this is significant that he sent them out by twos. The importance of accountability, this importance of support, the importance of community, maybe a, a precursor to Presbyterianism, huh? We could say that maybe. 
He empowered them by giving them authority over the demons. I think this is something for us to take note of, that this is a spiritual, a spiritually opposed task, right? Sharing Jesus and growing in Jesus is a spiritually opposed task. He encouraged simplicity and single-mindedness. He in that day and age, didn't want them to take a lot, wanted them to depend on others. All things we can learn from, all things we can go off on little tangents on. But I want to focus on the fact that he prepared them to be rejected. Right? He prepared them to be rejected as he was. Brothers and sisters, this is the challenge. This is the balance of being ambassadors of the gospel. I mean, the message that we have is the most wonderful message that the human heart could ever hear. It's a message that the human heart longs to hear. That they are loved. That they have purpose. That they have hope. And yet, the reality is, it's a message that's going to offend. And from a human perspective, pride, our own culture, hard-heartedness of the hearers will all stand in the way of Jesus. And so our message, our mission, our mission in our message is to be both of these. To be attractive, but to be offensive. You see, if we are always attractive to the unbelieving heart and we never give any kind of offense to anyone, there may be something wrong. Because Jesus is a stumbling block. But the flip side is, if we are always offending the unbelieving heart, and we are never communicating to the unbelieving heart the attractiveness of the gospel, then there is something wrong as well. Because Jesus is offensive by himself. You don't need to be offensive on top of that. It's a hard thing for us as the church. I grew up with a song that taught this truth. I, I've quoted Michael Card songs to you before. I learned probably 50% of my theology from Michael Card. Michael Card sang a song called Scandalon from that word translated here as offense. And I just want to read you the song. I'm not going to sing it to you, but I want to read it to you. He says, The seers and the prophets had foretold it long ago that the long-awaited one would make men stumble. But they who were looking for a, they were looking for a king to conquer and to kill, who would ever have thought he'd be so meek and humble? And yet he will be the truth that will offend them one and all. A stone that makes men stumble and a rock that makes them fall, many will be broken so that he can make them whole. Many will be crushed and lose their own soul. Along the path of life, there lies a stubborn scandal on. 
and all who come this way must be offended. To some he is a barrier, to others he's the way, for all should know the scandal of believing. And then the last verse, it seems today the scandalon offends no one at all. The image we present can be stepped over. Could it be that we are like the others long ago? Do we ever learn that all who come must stumble? The offense of Jesus and his gospel. The extraordinary mission of ordinary disciples. Friends, this is good news for our souls. It's good news for the world. And so as you go from this place this morning, rejoice in your Savior. That's the first takeaway. Rejoice in your Savior. Because He was rejected, you have been accepted. And then the second takeaway is go out into the world and offend in the most attractive way possible. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scandal of the gospel, the scandal of the Lord Jesus. For if he came to earth, if he gave the people what they wanted, there would be no hope for us. But because he submitted to your will, because he allowed himself to be rejected by the men who he breathed life into, because he allowed you, Father, to turn your back upon him as he bore our sin, we gather as sons and daughters those who are eager and desirous to live in that love, to rest in that love, and also to reflect that love, to shine that love. And so give us grace, give us wisdom to winsomely, attractively declare the truth of who you are, knowing that Jesus will offend, but trusting that you are at work. Oh, Father, impress these truths upon our hearts this day. By your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.